Revelation 22, and this morning we're going to read from verses 6 to 11, and then jump ahead to verses 18 through 21. Revelation 22, verses 6 through 11, and then verses 18 through 21, as we complete God's revelation in His Word. Let's give our attention now, brothers and sisters, these are the words of God. Revelation 22, verse 6, the Apostle John says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And then verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And God will now bless the reading and preaching of his word among us this morning. Well, some of the most important words that we know today, a two-word phrase, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. It's a common phrase now, probably wasn't so common years ago, but now with things like binge-watching television shows and finishing books and the ability to record sports games and things like that, it's become part of the common parlance. It's what you say when you're about to tell a story or recount an event that someone may or may not want to know the ending of, and so you're letting them know. There's a spoiler ahead. I'm going to spoil something for you. Now, sometimes we don't want to know the ending, right? You've had to work all day and you missed the ball game, but you recorded it on your TV and your buddy calls you who watched the game live. What do you do, right? You pick up the phone and say, don't tell me the end of the game. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Maybe you're watching your show and you're trying to catch up, maybe your spouse has gotten ahead of you or your friend has gotten ahead of you and you're watching a show that they've already finished and they come in the room, right? It's a really tense moment. What do you say? Don't tell me how it turns out. Don't tell me the ending. Don't spoil it for me. We don't want the ending of something spoiled most of the time. But can you imagine something like having to face a chemotherapy treatment or the surgery of your small child, a life-saving surgery that is very dangerous that they might need. In that moment, 
surely you would say, yeah, tell me how this ends. Tell me how this turns out. Can you imagine the difference it would make facing a chemotherapy treatment if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that at the end of it, it was going to have been successful? You know it's going to work. You would face that chemo treatment very differently, wouldn't you? If you knew that your little child going into the surgery room for that very dangerous but life-saving surgery, if you knew it was going to turn out well, you'd want to know that, wouldn't you? Because you could just sit in the waiting room, twiddling your thumbs, not having to worry because you knew it was going to turn out well. Most of the time, we don't like spoilers. But there are certain moments in life where spoilers would make all the difference in the world. Well, thank God that God, by His grace, gives us the spoiler. He tells us how this whole thing is going to end. He tells us how all things in the world, your life and mine, are all working together towards this one ending, and He doesn't leave you guessing what it will be. He tells you what's going to happen. And He calls you today to live in light of that reality. Spoiler alert, God gives us he tells us in his word, Jesus Christ is coming again. And he calls us to live in light of that reality. We have three questions I want to ask related to this text this morning. If Jesus Christ is coming again, as the Lord says he is in his word, if that is the summation and the conclusion of all things in this life, that Jesus Christ is coming again, the first question, what does the Lord provide me to prepare me for that. And we learn in Revelation 22 that he provides us his word. He gives us his word to prepare you for that day when Jesus Christ will come again. Look again with me at verse 6 at what the angel tells John. He said to me, these words, the words I've spoken to you, John, these words are faithful and true. The God who cannot lie Titus 1 verse 2 says, The God who cannot lie has spoken. He spoke through apostles and prophets. He spoke through angelic messengers like to uh, the apostle John in Revelation. And God has revealed his word in such a way that the angel can say this word is faithful and true. His word came through angelic agents, through human agents. But 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us that God orchestrated all that in such a way that the end result, although it is filtered through the various human agents who wrote the scriptures, the end result is that this is God's faithful and true word. People have asked the question, we asked this question in our Sunday school series uh, earlier this year about the Bible, and people have asked the question, what do we do when we come to this book? Is this book God's word or is this man's word? Because even you, preacher, have to confess that Men penned these pages, right? Men wrote this book, and surely you know how unreliable men can be. But friends, the reality is that God has orchestrated all this in such a way that although it was man's hand writing the scriptures down, it was God's word spoken through them, giving those faithful and true words. Now there's a few things about his word that we learn from this text. Number one, it's complete. It is complete. Verses 18 and 19 give us this warning not to add or subtract anything from God's word. Right? What did the angel say? If anyone adds to these things, 
God will add to him the plagues written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. In other words, the message, the warning is, don't add to the scriptures, don't take away from the scriptures. Don't think you can improve on them with your own ideas, and don't think you can correct them by taking away parts you don't like. Anyone who does so, either adding or subtracting from the scriptures, the, the warning is, there's condemnation waiting for the person who does that. There's condemnation waiting for that person. And many have tried. The earliest, one of the earliest Christian uh, heresies we know of is the heresy that was called Marcionism, named after the uh, second century heretic Marcion. Marcion was a man who didn't like his Old Testament. He didn't like the Old Testament God. He didn't like the Old Testament scriptures. He thought the Old Testament was a little dark and barbaric. And he thought the New Testament father of Jesus was so much better. And so he said, well, let's get rid of the Old Testament scriptures. And let's get rid of the New Testament scriptures that quote the Old Testament scriptures. And instead, we'll just have a little sort of New Testament body of literature that's more appealing to me, that fits my agenda better. And Marcion created his own version of the Bible. He took away from God's word. He subtracted from God's word, and he was condemned for it. Prophet Muhammad, the Islamic prophet, what did he do? He had the scriptures. The entire Bible was completed well before Muhammad lived in the seventh century. But he said, eh, I don't know. I think we can correct this, and I think I can improve on it with what this angel is telling me. Even in our own nation's history, men like Joseph Smith, founder of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, an angel came to me, and an angel told me. Well, now I know it's true, right? Because we know that there's only good angels. Right? An angel came to me, Joseph Smith told people. And, and he told me that there's more scriptures. We're missing something. Namely, this Book of Mormon that I found. And isn't this so wonderful that God has revealed to us his third testament? He added to the scriptures. He added to the Bible. Many people make the same mistake today. Maybe you don't do like Thomas Jefferson did and literally try to block out portions of Scripture you don't agree with. But you and I often do the same thing. Right? What do we say? Look, there's parts of the Bible I like and there's parts I don't like. There's parts that I enjoy and there's parts that kind of rub me the wrong way. And I choose not to read those parts, right? I like the New Testament. I don't like the Old Testament. I like John, but I don't like Matthew. I like letters like Romans that tell me about God's free grace. I don't like letters like James that tell me that only living faith that acts out in obedience will justify me. I like books like Revelation because they're very outlandish and I can have a lot of fun with them. I don't like books like Ephesians that tell me as a wife that I have to submit to my husband or tell me as a husband that I have to love and sacrifice for my wife. We do that. We add to the scriptures. We take away from the scriptures. And this warning from John and from the angel this morning is don't do that. Don't add to God's word. Don't take away from God's word. Why? Why is this such a serious issue? Because in God's word, God is revealing himself. The Bible is not just a collection of random stories and bits of teaching that God thinks you ought to memorize. The Bible is not first and foremost 
just something you need to sort of learn the way that you learned facts in school, the way that you learned your history dates for the exam in high school, the way that you learned algebra in high school. It's not just a collection of facts and tidbits of information. It is God revealing himself to you. So if I were to take this word and say, I think I can improve on it. I think I can fix this. I can add to it. I can take away from it and make it better. What I'm ultimately saying is, God's not good enough, and I can improve on it. I can improve God. This is God's revelation of himself. How do we know that? Well, I want to simply point out to you that when the angel said in verse 6, these words are faithful and true, we've actually heard that statement before. That combo of words, faithful and true, we've seen it before twice in the book of Revelation. In chapter 3, verse 14, and in chapter 19, verse 11. And both times, that, that combo of words, faithful and true, is applied to Jesus Christ himself. When the angel says these words are faithful and true, he is tying it together with the, the person of Jesus Christ himself. There is a direct correlation between how I view God's word and receive God's word and how I view God and receive God. His word is a reflection of himself. We've seen this in the very beginning. What was the first temptation that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? Remember that it wasn't some you know, extreme sin, as we think of it. Satan didn't tempt Eve to commit adultery. He didn't tempt her to murder someone. He didn't tempt her to do something heinous the way we think of it. It was what we would consider kind of a little sin, right? It's just asking questions. Did God really say? Did God really say, don't touch the tree? But notice how Satan ties that question towards an attack on God himself. He asks him, did God really say? He questions God's word. But here again, how he attacks God's character through that. When Eve responds to him, the serpent comes back, you will not surely die. What's he saying? God is lying to you. God said you would die in his word, but you won't actually die. God, God is lying to you. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. God is holding something back from you. There's something you could have if you disobeyed God, and God doesn't want you to have it. He's holding something back from you. And why is he doing it? God knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's selfish. He doesn't want to share with you. He doesn't want you to have something good that he enjoys. Anytime we start questioning God's word, anytime we start adding or subtracting from God's word, it's not just an attack on the Bible. It's an attack on the God of the Bible. Anytime I start saying to myself, I think I can improve on the scriptures, what I'm really saying is that God is insufficient. That God himself needs improving and that I'm the one to do it. Your response to God's word, friend, will reveal your attitude towards God himself. So God gives us his word as the assurance, the confirmation that these things are so. And God commands us to receive his word that way. He says, this is, this is how I want you to be prepared for the second coming. Listen to my words. Receive my words. And then in response to my words, do two things. Repent and keep my words. Repent and keep my words. We see this very clearly played out in John's response to the angel. It's almost comical 
uh, if it wasn't so dangerous. When the angel finishes his message to John, what did we read John did? Verse 8. He's so overcome. It says, when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. First of all, just look at how sort of deceitful sin can be. John, in the climax of his revelation, the moment when he should have been most excited about the Lord, what does he do? He, he sins. He falls down before a creature and he starts worshiping this angel as if it were God. Angels are majestic beings. They're beautiful creatures. They're glorious creations of God. But they are not and never will be worthy of worship. And yet John in this moment falls down and he tries to worship this angel. And what does the angel do? I know that it's this phrase in verse 9, see that you do not do that. But I want you to notice, if you have a New King James Version as I use, or if uh, many other Bible versions do this too, you'll notice most of that sentence is in italics. What that means is that most of that sentence is not present in the original Greek. The, the translators have inserted those words to help in the English flow. But realistically, the only two words in the Greek are that word see and that word not. When you hear the angel saying this to John, you ought to hear it the way that a parent sort of uh, 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 chides at a, a small child, snaps at a small child doing something dangerous, right? Parents, you know that, that sound you make? Ah! Stop it. No. Don't do that. That's the kind of thing that happens with this angel and John, and that's what it looks like to be convicted by God's word. God's word comes and it says, no, stop doing that. Don't, don't keep living that way. Jesus is coming again. You've got to live in light of that reality. And the angel knows, John, if you start worshiping me, you're going to go astray from Christ. You're going to go astray from God, and you're not going to be ready when Christ comes again. You're not going to be ready to face God if you become an idolater and start worshiping me. Sin is that deadly. It is so deadly that the angel warns about it in verse 11. I know it's a, it's a strange sort of uh, phrase that he uses here, but look again at verse 11. The angel tells John, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. What's he saying? Is the angel saying, I want you to keep sinning? I don't think so. I think he's warning about how hardening sin can be. He's warning, repent before it's too late. If you keep going on in your injustice and your unjust behavior, if you keep going on in your filthiness, there's going to come a point where you can't turn back from it anymore. There's going to come a point where you become so hardened in it that you can't repent. You can't turn back. I believe that's why the angel snaps at John so quickly. Because if idolatry is left to sit for very long, it becomes deadly very quickly. And the angel knows that John will go astray. He doesn't want John to go on in sin, and God doesn't want us to go on in sin either. Because if we go on in our sins, we won't be ready to face Christ when he comes again. This is the reality, friends, and it, this is the, the call to repentance from God's word. Because the longer we pursue sin, the longer you keep going this direction towards sin and don't repent and come back to God, the more you go that direction, the harder it is to turn back around. The longer you pursue sin, the longer you coddle your sin and protect your sin, the harder it becomes to break free from your sin 
And that's why God calls us to repentance, and he does so like this angel does quickly. Do it now. If my child's hand is going towards a burning hot stove, I don't have a lot of time for them to turn around before it gets dangerous. And God wants the same thing for you. Repentance means turning away from sin and also turning back toward God. It's not just about getting rid of things in your life. It's about pursuing the things that God now wants you to do. I want you to notice how the angel says that there is a blessing. But in verse 7, he says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Keeping means that you observe something or you obey something. It's not just keeping it in the sense of like holding on to it for a friend. It's keeping it in the sense of observing it, being mindful of it, living in light of it. Not just hearing the word, in other words, but responding in obedience to the word. There's a blessing for those not just who hear the words of God, but who keep the words of God, who respond by faith to the words of God. James 1, verses 21 and 22. James says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. James warns us that there's a very real reality that you might be a hearer of God's word. It might go into your ears, but it might not get down into your heart because you're only content with hearing and you don't want to be a doer of the word. Jesus warned that there would be many people who called him Lord, Lord, when he comes again. That at his second coming, many people would come to him and say, Jesus, I know you. I heard your word, right? I I went to church. I heard sermons. I listened to them. Put on Christian podcasts throughout the week, right? I put on my Bible app. I listened to it at morning and night. I heard your word. But Jesus warned that many who would say to him, Lord, Lord, he would say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. There's a very real danger that you might be a hearer, but the word isn't getting through your ears down into your heart. So friends, we've got to hear God's word with a mind towards keeping God's word. That's where the angel says the blessing is found. Not blessed is he who hears the words of this prophecy, but blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy. If I want to live in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus, I've got to live in such a way where I'm listening to God's word with a desire to obey God's word. And friends, that is only possible through the Holy Spirit. Apart from having the Holy Spirit, you and I have no desire to keep God's word. But through the Holy Spirit living inside of your heart now, you not only have the desire, but God gives you the power to do it. Jesus warned us about those who might be freed from the tyranny of evil spirits, but never be filled with the Holy Spirit. Turn over with me, if you would, to Matthew uh, chapter 12. We'll just look at this quickly. But this is the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit for the Christian. Matthew chapter 12 And towards the end of the chapter, verse 43, Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he, the unclean spirit, goes through dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. 
Then the unclean spirit says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Jesus is warning, man, there's a possibility that you might be freed from things like unclean spirits, and yet if the Holy Spirit doesn't then take up residency in your heart, all you're really doing is tidying the place up for when those unclean spirits come back. It's not enough just to try to reform your life. There are lots of ways in this world that you can, quote unquote, reform your life. You can quit drinking. You can quit doing drugs. You can quit looking at pornography. You can quit being an abusive husband or a wife. There's all sorts of ways to quit doing those things. But if ultimately your heart is then not filled with the Holy Spirit, all you are doing is tidying the place up for evil to come back and take up residence in your heart. God gives us his word, not just so that we can know it uh, and, and repent from our sins, but so that we can then be filled with his Holy Spirit and actually start keeping his word. Friend, it, it's not about just getting rid of those bad things in your life, those sins that you know are there, those failures that you know are there. The Christian life is not just about finding the sin in your life and tidying up after them. It is about getting rid of those things that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit so that He can transform you from the inside out. And only the Holy Spirit transforming you from the inside out can make you a keeper of God's Word and prepare you for the second coming of Jesus. And friends, I want to end this morning with my last question. Why can I do that in hope? Because it's by God's grace that He does this. It's by God's grace that He does this. If you're hearing this word and you're saying, how do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? It's not by trying harder. It's not by pedaling faster. It's not by recommitting yourself to the Lord because you know that you and I won't keep as faithful as we say we will. But it's about receiving God's gift by his grace. I want to point out to you that last verse. Verse 21, the last verse in all of the Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The Bible ends with God's grace. If you're sitting here and you've heard all these words up until this point, and you say, Keith, I don't feel very encouraged by this. I don't feel like I'm doing a good job of following Christ. And this makes me feel like I'm not ready to face him at his second coming. Friends, thank God that our hope is not in ourselves. The Christian's hope is never in himself. It's never in my own efforts. It's never in my own doings. My hope is never built on the things that I have done. What does the old hymn say? My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not my own. Not my own works. Not my own good deeds. Not my church attendance. Not my hearing of sermons. Not my reformation of life. Nothing else is worthy as a foundation of my hope except for what God has done for me in Christ. Christ and the grace of God given through him is the only thing worth building your life on and it is the only thing that will prepare you for the second coming of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's grace? What does that mean? Someone has said that it's a good acronym. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's 
riches at Christ's expense. Grace means that God doesn't treat you the way you deserve to be treated. When God looks at you, even with your sin, God doesn't treat you according to your sin. He treats you according to Christ. When God sees us, he no longer sees you apart from Christ. He sees you in Christ. And now at Christ's expense, God gives you his riches of grace. If you are here today and you have faith in Christ, if you've received him as your Savior and Lord, then what that means, what grace means for you, is that God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, now stands in your place. And at the second coming of Jesus, when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, you will have a witness on your behalf. And the witness will not be your righteousness. The witness will be Christ's righteousness. When you stand before Christ at his tribunal judgment seat, you will not stand alone. You will have a defense. And the defense will not be what you have done. It will be what God has done in Christ for you. His blood will cry out on your behalf. And God will forgive and reward you according to Christ's work, not your work. Grace inherently means that you don't get what's coming to you. Grace means that God is not going to be fair with you. I know that often when we're struggling in this life, we're going through suffering, we cry out to God and we say, God, this isn't fair. God, you're not being fair to me right now. Friends, you don't want God to be fair to you. Fair looks like hell. Fair looks like judgment. Fair looks like infinite condemnation for your sin. You don't want God to be fair. And thank God, grace is not fair, but it is just. If Christ has gone to the cross on your behalf, and if you've trusted in him as your Savior and Lord, then that means that he has taken away your sins, and he has paid their penalty already. And now when you stand before him on the day of judgment, there will be no more sins left to pay for, because he's paid for all of them. And the only thing that will remain for you is a reward of eternal life, freely given at Christ's expense. Freely given at God's expense, the expense of his own son. There's an old hymn speaking of the Lord Jesus in heaven, and it says, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. The nail prints in his hand, the nail prints in his feet, the pierced in his side. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. On the day of judgment, the nail-pierced hands of Jesus will cry out for all believers, forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. God cannot be unjust. He will not overlook the work of his son. And if you are in Christ today by faith, then Christ's work will stand for you on the day of judgment. He saves you by his grace. You're saved today by God's grace. He is going to lead and guide you through this life by his grace, and he will bring you to eternal life by his grace. I have said it before, and it bears repeating. All of this is God's grace from start to finish. There is never a point where God's grace takes a break and God calls you to take over. There's never a point, as we're doing with Nora right now, trying to teach her to ride a bike. She's got her little practice bike that they give kids with no pedals. There's never going to be a point where God takes his hands off of you, Christian, and says, all right, you try it your own, right? Pedal yourself. Why? Because he knows that the moment he does that, you're going to fall over. 
So he says, no, I'm never going to let you go. His grace starts your salvation. His grace is bringing you through this life and his grace will bring you to eternal life. There's never a point, in other words, where you will stand before God and be treated the way that we deserve to be treated according to our sins. Every time God looks at you, Christian, from now until eternity, he looks at you in light of the work of his son and he rewards you freely because of what his son has done for you. So when we hear those words as Christians, when Jesus says in verse 20, surely I am coming quickly, that doesn't sound foreboding to us. The fact that we know the end of the story and that it works out in, in the best way possible for the believer in Christ, we can have joy now. We can face the trials of life. You remember, right, going through chemo would be a lot different if you knew the outcome already. Friends, you don't have to despair when life throws hard things your way. You already know how your story is going to finish. You already know how God is going to wrap all this up. And it is with the coming of Christ to raise you from the dead and to give you eternal life forever. If you're in Christ by faith today, then that is your future. That is the spoiler that God is revealing to you today. And ultimately, that eternal life is coming with the person of Jesus. And so we can pray with John. Right? What was John's response to Jesus's message? Surely I'm coming quickly. What did he say? Amen. Let it be so. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Come back, Lord Jesus. Come get me, Lord Jesus. Come save me and bring me to eternal life, Lord Jesus. It's a truth of the Christian faith that eternal life is wrapped up in Christ. There are many things that I'm going to enjoy about eternal life. And I imagine there's many things that you will enjoy about eternal life. I will enjoy seeing my believing loved ones again. I will enjoy my immortal body, which will never hurt or get sick or break down ever again. Uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, I imagine, uh, like Elon Musk could only dream about today, I imagine I will enjoy hopping into a rocket ship and exploring all of the unfathomable reaches of space, no longer restricted by time or decay or death, just exploring the magnificent creation that God has made, freed from sin. But friends, the greatest thing about eternal life, the greatest thing about the second coming is that it's Christ coming again. The greatest thing about heaven will not be seeing my loved ones again. It will not be my immortal body, and it will not be exploring the unfathomable reaches of space. It will be Jesus seeing him face to face, the one who loved me enough to die for me, the one who gave his life for me, the one who loved me so much he would take my sins on himself, the one who called me by his grace, the one who's loved me with an everlasting love, all of my doubts cast down, all of my sins taken away forever, seeing Jesus face to face and never being without him again. That is the greatest thing about heaven. That's the greatest thing about eternal life. And he is coming again. There's no question about it, friend. It's, it's a guaranteed outcome. You know those moments where you've recorded the game and someone tells you the score and you still bother to watch it and you find yourself hoping that maybe your team won't actually lose like your friend said they did. Maybe something went wrong with the recording. No, the second coming is guaranteed. It is assured. The God who cannot lie is telling you today that his son is coming again. And the only question you and I have to wrestle with is, are you ready?
Are you ready? Have you come to him? Have you received his word? Have you been filled with his Holy Spirit? Are you keeping his word? Are you walking by faith in him? Are you joyfully looking forward to that second coming? You lay hold on Christ by faith. You cry out for his salvation and he will surely receive you. The one who is coming again invites you to come to him today and every day. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. Oh Lord, we thank you for the privilege it is to know the Bible. And Lord, to have your word imprinted on our hearts. Please bless this reading of your word. And Lord, as we've heard it this morning, please bless us to receive it. Lord, meekly, the implanted word that you've given us. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.